Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Well, you know, I do think that this question of what's happening to kids and youth in global sport is perhaps the most pressing question in sport, because I think that at younger and younger ages, they're becoming commodities on a global athletic supply chain. But what attracted me to American Samoa was that it was an incredible microculture sporting excellence. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to the incredible, incredible author. Uh, He wrote a book called Race Ball about the Dominican Republic and baseball, which is one of my all-time favorite sports books. And his latest sports book is called Tropic of Football, The Long and Perilous Journey of Samoans to the NFL. His name is Rob Brock, and we have him right here on the Edge of Sports Podcast. Also, I got some choice words about the Dallas Cowboys, my least favorite club on God's green earth. And we got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards, Kaepernick Watch, and much more. But first, let's go to Rob Rock. Rob, the first question is is a historical one. How did football come to Samoa? How did football come to the South Seas? Football got to American Samoa in the late 60s as a result of the Cold War, Uh, A number of years after Reader's Digest published a story calling American Samoa America's shame in the South Seas, we began building up the island. Um, Part of that buildup was developing a high school system that allowed every kid to get an education. And once we had high school football, high schools, we had high school football. Um, And very quickly, the sport replaced rugby and cricket as the passion among young men. Mm. Now, no, that, 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 that part is, is really interesting. Um, I ask, who, who are the pioneers in the United States, and what was their experience with being pioneers, particularly comparing and contrasting with other sports? I mean, did they experience uh, racism? Did they experience 
um, a feeling of being outsiders in this world. But who were those pioneers that brought us to the Troy Palamalus and the Junior Seaus? Sure. There are two migrations of Samoans to the United States. Uh, an early 20th century migration uh, to Hawaii, which is then a U.S. possession, in which Mormons who are building the first temple outside of the U.S. for their South Seas convert um, bring Samoans to help build it in the North Shore around a town called Laie. And that's your first concentration of Samoans. And the first Samoan to play in the NFL, Alopati Lolotai, is the child of the family that had taken part in that labor migration. There's a second wave, though, that comes in the early 1950s. America, after taking over um, American Samoa in the early 1900s, totally forgot about it until World War II, when it became a staging ground for the counterattack after Pearl Harbor. And by the end of the war, Samoans were fierce American patriots, and most of the economy revolved around the military, people working for or being a part of it. But the U.S. shut its Navy base down in 1951 and gave passage to the families of people who were either in the military or worked for the military. And that led to these concentrations in Honolulu, in Oceanside around Camp Pendleton, uh, Long Beach, California around the Navy Yard, Fort Lewis, Washington. And you have another group that start to emerge from those communities in the 60s and 70s, what we begin to know as the Polynesian pipeline. And I think the most impressive member of that generation is Jesse Sapalu, who played at Farrington High School in Hawaii, in Honolulu, after arriving um, via California from Samoa, and then Arizona. Uh, excuse me, then the University of Hawaii, and then won four Super Bowls with the 49ers. You know, I don't think they suffered anywhere near the level of racial discrimination that um, players from the Caribbean or African-Americans faced. Uh, they were few in number. Uh, they were a bit of an anomaly. Uh, people really didn't know what to make of them for the most part. And it's only yeah, been in the last 20 years that they've come on in significant numbers. Yeah, I was going to ask you how you compare and contrast this experience of studying the Samoan pipeline with what you describe in race ball and the history of uh, the Caribbean and the Dominican Republic. Are, are those the main differences? Are we just talking about time and space? Um, but are there other differences as well, particularly related to U.S. empire that you want to share? When I first got to American Samoa, uh, three flights and 24 hours from Pittsburgh to Pongo Pongo. And the first day I'm there, I see kids jogging, carrying football helmets. I see four-hour scrimmages. And I begin to think that this is just like the Dominican Republic, except it's football instead of baseball and Samoan instead of Spanish and south of the equator instead of north. But what I realized after a while was that Samoans were never enslaved. They were never conquered. And people in the territory uh, live on land that is collectively owned by their family, their extended family. 
which cannot be sold. And they've got their own set of chiefs called Matai that represent them. And they live in the way of Fa'a Samoa, in the way of Samoa. So it's a society with a lot of mutual obligations, uh, respect for elders. Um, there's a good reason why Robert Louis Stevenson called Polynesians God's best, at least sweetest works. Um, there's a certain gentleness to the soul. And, you know, it was often referred to as communism in its most perfect form. So I think... I think that the uh, similarity, though, with Dominicans and uh, Venezuelans and kids from hard-pressed communities is simply that sport has become the ticket out. Except for Samoans, it's also a ticket to education, which is prized within the culture and is extremely useful if they go back to the island and they want to work for the local government. Wow. Now, you also speak in the book of Samoan culture, of something called warrior culture that exists independent of football. Is that fair to say? Definitely. Um, There is a self-image on the part of these kids and coaches that they're warriors, which means they'll give everything for the team, and they never, ever cop to pain. They're very stoic about pain. And that, of course, sets them up for a lot of danger. I was going to say, I was going to ask you the the pitfalls of warrior culture and how it operates with masculinity. Sure. How it intersects with masculinity. You know, we're seeing um, declining numbers of kids playing youth football, particularly Pop Warner, and playing in high school. And increasing numbers of parents don't want their kids playing because we've reached a tipping point in our understanding of neurological damage caused by this particular sport. You don't see nearly that much in Samoans. Um, And what it means is that particularly in the island, as opposed to Samoan Americans in Hawaii and California, they'll begin practicing uh, in January or February. They will practice on fields stubbled with golf ball-sized pieces of volcanic rock. They play in helmets that should have been discarded long ago, and they hit. They really hit. And that, of course, um, sets them up as they age for the cumulative impact of uh, subconcussive and concussive blows. Now, independent of football, the suicide rate in American Samoa is very high among men. How, How is that explained in America, what's the dialogue about that? How is it explained? You know, it's probably higher in independent Samoa. Um, I have to say that in all the time I, in all the trips to American Samoa, I never ever heard anybody talking about that or explain it. Um, and I think that you know, there's there's frustrations living in a place that does not have a viable economy and has limited outlets uh, for kids. I mean, the major island in American Samoa is 19 miles long, four to five miles wide, and it's just a, it's a volcanic uplift that's slathered in green. And, you know, there's not the kind of action or lifestyle 
world or chances to do stuff in life if you're not happy with village life. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not sure what the suicide rate is in American Samoa. I mean, I have read that it's uh, often inordinately high in Samoa. Now, let's talk about uh, Junior Seau. Um, is he, the way Seau is discussed among football, do you think that's among football players in American Samoa? Um, can you speak about that and about whether his death, whether the CTE that he undoubtedly suffered from, I mean, are, are the, or that we know he suffered from, are these things that um, have entered the dialogue of football in American Samoa? You know, I think Seau's death had quite an impact um, in both Polynesian communities in the states and in the territory. Um, he was an iconic player, just like uh, Sapalo and Palomalu. Um, and he personified that warrior style. I mean, the guy played 20 years, 20 seasons in the NFL and was never, ever diagnosed with concussion, which is preposterous. I mean, he had multiple injections of painkillers, broken bones, and he played with them. And he played at an incredible level. Um, that he killed himself so soon after retiring and that he shot himself in the chest so they could do an autopsy to determine CTE um, has had an effect. But I think there's a ways to go. Uh, particularly in the territory, before they do what they can do. Um, they're still not doing the baseline concussion impact test at the start of the season. I mean, I think they're more likely to consider it. But whenever I would bring up this question uh, with guys who had played football, they didn't want to talk about it. That's just something that um, obviously strikes close to home for a lot of them. Now, um, I want to ask you a little bit about your inspiration for writing this book. Um, when, when I heard you were doing it, I had this uh, very sort of simplistic thought that maybe is true, but I was like, okay, Rob Rock wrote, base, wrote race ball. Uh, he charted baseball through the, the pipeline, through the Caribbean and the Dominican Republic. Now he's writing um, uh, tropical, tropical football uh, about... Samoans to the NFL, so just taking a different sport in a different part of the world. Was that what inspired you to write it, just to look at it the way a different sports pipeline worked? Well, you know, I do think that this question of what's happening to kids and youth in global sport is perhaps the most pressing question in sport, because I think that at younger and younger ages, they're becoming commodities on a global athletic supply chain. But what attracted me to American Samoa was that it was an incredible microculture sporting excellence. And I'm interested in why certain parts, certain locales uh, start to send a disproportionate number of talented athletes to the top of their sport. And I'm not just interested in, in why I'm interested in what sport means in those communities. And what I saw in Samoa um, was, yeah, I mean, a lot of these kids are coming from pretty tough socioeconomic backgrounds, and that drives them into sport. But there's also a celebratory aspect that sport plays for these people. Um, you know, it's it's their brand now. 
whether it's rugby in independent Samoa and their migration to New Zealand, where many of them play on the All Blacks, the greatest rugby team in the world, or American Samoa and Samoan American communities to Division I football and the NFL. Uh, that's how people get to know of Samoans. And it's their story. And I think it's it's an incredibly rich cultural story um, of people who grow up in a culture that, unlike most of the cultures of the South Pacific, was able to retain its cultural integrity and continuity. And part of that is a warrior tradition, uh, which translates into sport. Um, but part of it is a very disciplined culture of people who are uh, who grew up Samoan strong with a lot of you know, physical labor, walking everywhere, uh, and taking that discipline and that uh, physicality and that warrior culture and channeling it into a football sport and um, emerging, I think, in extraordinarily disproportionate numbers in the game at the top levels. Mm. And I do want to ask you, like when, when you said about this project, um, did you learn something from writing this book that, that truly surprised you that you did not expect when looking at this pipeline? I mean, there's a pride that comes from living on your own land for a couple of thousand years and having your own system of collective elected leadership by the family and that pride that comes from living in the way of Samoa. Um, you know, it's just an extraordinarily rich culture and I've never been exposed to anything like it. Hmm. Well, Robert, I do want to ask you also if, if, and it's not something covered extensively in the book, but I, I would like to know like the, the position of women in American Samoa, like as this sure. warrior culture sure. pervades and as, the NFL is seen as, as an even viable option for people with limited options. Where are women in this? You know, I think that in Samoan society, um, very patriarchal, um, probably very abusive in some ways in the past, and to a degree still is. Um, but I think that's beginning to change. I saw more and more women in leadership uh, particularly in the school system, uh, the non-voting representative from American Samoa to the U.S. House of Representatives uh, finally in 2014 uh, was a woman who was elected. Um, I think that you'll find that it's more of a matriarchal society these days, and particularly for uh, these kids. Um, their mothers play a significant role. Uh, often coaches would tell me, high school and college coaches, if the kid began to act up, they'd say, I'm going to call your mother. And that would end it. Um, I mean, there's a ways to go. There's a ways to go in the United States. Um, but uh, there's more of a way to go, I think, in this culture when it comes to gender equality. Well, Rob Rock, I really do appreciate your time. The book is Tropic of Football, The Long and Perilous Journey of Samoans to the NFL. 
Rob, something I ask, particularly writers, but something I ask everybody who's on the show is as you were writing, as you were trying to process this work, uh, were you listening to any music? And if so, what kind? <laughs> um, probably the most music I listen to is uh, Marley and Fish. The latter compliments of my son, Bob Marley. I was going to ask which Marley. Fish. Okay, so Bob Marley. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. <laughs> my, my producer's a Damien He's Marley. He's ubiquitous. You know, one of the, one of the funniest experiences I had in, in this entire research trip when I was in independent Samoa. And one morning I'm driving around the island and I hear a Samoan dub of one love. Oh, and that was awesome. That was magical, I'm sure. <laughs> and now we can uh, go to the outro of the interview playing one love. And if we can find the Samoan dub version, that it. would be amazing. But if not, Bob <laughs> will always suffice. Hey, Rob Rock, thank you so much for your time, buddy. I really do appreciate it. Dave, thank, thank you for this opportunity. But moreover, thank you for the kind of perspective you bring to sport, which we really need these days. Oh, thank you so much. His name is Rob Ruck. The book is Tropic of Football. I cannot recommend it highly enough. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got a few choice words about America's team, the Dallas Cowboys. Okay, look, if the Dallas Cowboys are truly America's team, then the last couple of weeks paints a chilling picture about the state of this country. You got team owner Jerry Jones and his mediocrity of a son, Stephen, stating without equivocation that anyone who does not stand in a position of respect for the national anthem before games will be denied employment and cut from the team. Now, Donald Trump chortled with joy at their brutish edict, but the league less so. And this is because the Joneses chose to spew their alt-right marching orders at a moment when the NFL and NFL Players Association were engaging in tense negotiations to try to come together for a comprehensive policy for players who protest that respects their basic constitutional and collective bargaining rights. Now, if there were two players on the Cowboys roster who could have, if nothing else, recentered this discussion and stood in even modest solidarity with protesting players, players standing up against police violence and racial inequity, it would have been their two young stars, quarterback Dak Prescott and running back Ezekiel Elliott. Yet with the sharp timing of an orchestrated press operation, Dak Prescott immediately and resolutely backed the Jones duo saying some words that aren't going to be carved into the side of a mountain anytime soon. This is what Dak Prescott said. 
No, I never protest. I never protest during the anthem, and I don't think that's the time or the venue to do so. Uh, the game of football has always brought me such a peace, and I think it does the same for a lot of people. A lot of people playing the game, a lot of people watching the game, a lot of people that have any impact of the game. So when you bring such a controversy uh, to, the, to the stadium, to the field, to the game, uh, it takes away. It takes away from that. It takes away from the joy and to the, the love that football brings a lot of people. As for Ezekiel Elliott, suspended for six games last season due to allegations of violence against women, this is what he had to say. Um, I think that's just the way you guys want to take it. Um, us as a team, we chose to stand together for the national anthem. And uh, it was our decision. And I think it just shows our culture. It shows that you know that uh, we, have, we have unity, we're going to stand as one. That's not knocking anyone else who may choose to kneel during the national anthem, but we're the Dallas Football Cowboys America's team. We stand for the national anthem. Notice the words unsaid in the statements of both Prescott and Elliott. That's more interesting than what they actually said. The words that went unsaid. Words like racism, police brutality, injustice. By making this issue solely about protesting during the anthem, they're doing Trump's job for him. It's a racist disinformation campaign, and they are now party to spreading its poison. Now, there are those who defend Prescott and Elliott by pointing to their youth, their vulnerability as young players on their first contract, and the lack of job security in the NFL, but I don't think we can have that. There are people a great deal more vulnerable and frankly a hell of a lot younger than these two football stars who are risking their lives in the streets to fight police killings. There are also players who have put their own livelihoods at risk, faced death threats, or even in the case of Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed, sacrificed their jobs to make these issues plain. For Prescott and Elliott, particularly Prescott, to side so resolutely with Jones is to throw these players and their union under the bus and then back up the bus right when a united front is needed, not only for this issue, but for collective bargaining negotiations lurking right around the corner. The best response to all this hot air coming out of Dallas has come from Philadelphia Eagle Malcolm Jenkins. This is what he said. Uh, I don't see Jeffrey as a bully like, like Jerry Jones is. Um, and so, you know, lucky for me, I don't play for the Cowboys, uh, nor would I want to. Um, I think. It's unfortunate that you have owners like him that use his position to intimidate and, and, and intentionally thwart, you know, uh, even the idea of his players thinking individually or having a voice uh, about issues that affect their communities daily, which uh, is unfortunate. But um, for them, you know, hopefully you'll have guys challenge that and, and uh, they'll have my full support. That is dead right. The hope is that Prescott and Elliott will at least acknowledge that it isn't unity which causes the entire team to toe the Jerry Jones line. It's bullying and fear. If that's what makes up the spine of America's team, it'll be a long season in Dallas and a hell of a long season for America. But you know what? The best response to Jerry Jones came from local sportscaster Dale Hansen. Now, this went viral. It's only about 30 seconds long. Listen to what Dale had to say, and I think it matters because apparently it really got under old Jerry's skin. 
Cowboys owner Jerry Jones has been talking this week about getting this football team ready to play in another Super Bowl. It has been 22 years since they have, and only three playoff wins in those 22 years. But Jones talks about that almost every year anyway. And he has been talking too much this week about all the problems the NFL is still having off the field. Jones and his son Stephen were saying the other day that any player who takes a knee and doesn't toe the line during the national anthem won't be playing for the Dallas Cowboys anymore. It's incredible to me that a player can beat up a woman and play for the Dallas Cowboys. A player can use illegal drugs time and time again and still play. But you take a knee to protest the racial injustice in America, and now you've crossed a line that he will not allow. Jones loves and respects the national anthem so much that when it was being played before the start of practice Saturday, he left his cap on. And when he was told about the mistake he was making, he still left his cap on. He who makes the rules apparently doesn't have to follow them. I'm Dale Hansen. Enjoy the day. Now we got the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award Stand up. goes to LeBron James. LeBron James stood up this week like few players have because the greatest player on earth opened a new public school in his hometown of Akron, Ohio called I Promise. The school, which serves 240 at-risk third and fourth graders, is a sight to behold. It is a breathtaking piece of architecture which sends an immediate message to the children about their worth from the moment they step through the doors. In addition to meals, job training for parents, and even a bicycle and helmet for every student, the school offers guaranteed college tuition for everyone who goes on to graduate high school. Now, all credit to LeBron James. All credit to him for not just being someone who shuts up and dribbles. I, I love what he's doing here. And the praise he's receiving is more than deserved. And that the school is public and not a charter is also special and demands particular attention. I spoke to Jesse Hagopian, who's a friend of the show, an activist Seattle public school teacher, and co-author of the book Teaching for Black Lives. This is what Jesse said. He said to me, Corporate education reformers have claimed that charter schools, taking public funds for privately run schools, are the only way to bring innovation to education. With his I Promise public school, LeBron has shook that idea like so many opponents on his way to the rack. By partnering with the Akron Public Schools, not trying to subvert them or profit off them with an unaccountable charter, LeBron has demonstrated to the world the power of truly investing in public education. LeBron James is awesome, okay? He even took on Donald Trump as he's been doing rounds of interviews calling out his racism as he's talking about his school. But at the same time, it's vital that we don't fall in love with the idea that the wealthy philanthropist is going to fix the crisis of public education in this country. Think about LeBron James, one of the most powerful and wealthy athletes on earth, who just put his heart and soul into building this school, and its reach is still just 245 children in Akron. Take a place like Baltimore, where thousands of young people freeze in their school's dilapidated buildings during the winter and face unbearable heat over the summer. The solution does not lie in Baltimore's own Carmelo Anthony building a school. It lies in agitation against Education Secretary Betsy DeVos and her marauding agenda for profit schooling. 
It lies in remembering the all-too-true slogan that a teacher's working conditions are a child's learning conditions. It lies in enacting a Marshall Plan for public education that lowers class sizes and builds new facilities so every child can have that look of beautiful hope on their faces that the children of I Promise showed the world this very week. LeBron has shown that he will not donate funds without also speaking his mind. Those of us without the resources, but also with something to say, need to walk in his footsteps. That's my long Just Stand Up Award for LeBron James. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. It's gotta go to Urban Meyer, the head coach at Ohio State, or maybe by the time you're listening to this, the ex-head coach at Ohio State. Now we know that Urban Meyer knew of a 2015 allegation of domestic violence against one of his assistant coaches, Zach Smith, who was fired in July. Now Meyer's massive contract, and it is a massive contract, it includes language that requires him to report any violations by staff members of Ohio State's sexual misconduct policy. And now what's circulating is the idea that, is that he covered this up for three years. And so if Urban Meyer gotta go, Urban Meyer gotta go. You know what's crazy is that the same day in 2015 that it was said that Urban Meyer uh, knew about the allegations against Zach Smith, the same day he was apparently on Bill O'Reilly's radio show saying that he could never have a player like Jameis Winston uh, the quarterback at the time for the Florida State Seminoles because Jameis Winston stole crab's legs from a Publix. So, I mean, there, there's no hypocrite quite like the self-satisfied, pontificating, starch-shirted Republican. That is Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer, peace! Sit your ass down. Hey everybody, this is Dave Zirin from the Edge of Sports Podcast. We are trying to add all kinds of bells and whistles to this pod. To do that, we need more folks who can sustain its existence. Go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. That is where you'll find us. If you become a patron, you'll see you get all kinds of little treats. But it's so important that people help us sustain and do the work. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. And you can give five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or if you're feeling mighty generous, a hell of a lot more than that. And all of that helps us do the kind of work that we're trying to do on the regular. Patreon.com slash Edge of Sports Pod. And now, back to the broadcast. Now it's time for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch, where we detail the latest comings and goings with exiled former San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick. This week, and this could have gone to the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, this week the story is about Madden football, arguably the most popular video game on earth, and the fact that they were playing a rap song by Big Sean, and they actually censored the word Kaepernick as if it was a cuss word. This is the lyrics in the verse by Big Sean goes, feed me to the wolves, now I lead the pack, and shit, you boys all cap, I'm more Colin Kaepernick. That's the verse, and this is how it now plays on Madden. Feed me to the wolves, now I lead the pack, and you boys all cap, I'm more... Did you catch that? They bleep out shit and Colin Kaepernick, as if Colin Kaepernick's very name is a cuss word. And this is erasure, pure and simple, and it's actually kind of evil if you think about it. 
And Big Sean has gone public, and this is what he sent out, this message. He said, It's disappointing and appalling that the NFL and EA Sports took Kaepernick's name out of my verse on Big Bank for Madden 19 like it was a curse word. When he's not a curse, he's a gift. Nobody from my team approved any of this. So just a quick word right there about Colin Kaepernick. They keep trying to erase this guy, but the more they try to turn him into a ghost, he's a spirit. The more they try to put him down, the more like a phoenix he flies to the skies. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Well, that's all we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to our guest, Rob Rock. Thank you to The Nation magazine. Thank you to everybody out there who gives to our Patreon page. You know what you got to do. You go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. It makes a huge difference. If you want to contact me, Dave Zirin, all you got to do is go to Twitter at edgeofsports. And, yo, thank you for listening to our podcast. What we try to do every week is to take a phrase that's rarely heard, flip it, and make it a daily word. We can get iller than nom, kill and bomb, but no alarm. We'll try to remain calm. I mean, that's all we try to do here. So stay frosty, everybody. Peace.